Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of August 28th, 2022. I'm a bit overwhelmed at the moment, so I'll try to keep it pretty brief. I will say that I kind of feel like I'm talking into the void. I'm asking for a few people to react to these things, and there are maybe three total that have across many, many weeks. So yeah, I'm looking to start roundtables with implementers, but I need people to do some of the logistics. So if you actually want to speak to people implementing data mesh, which is exactly what every implementer tells me they want to do. I need you, yes, you listening, to step up. It's insanely easy. I'm actually more of an expert at business process than I am at anything else, and I will make it so low friction, like 10 minutes max of work to host a roundtable. But I just don't have time right now to attend a bunch of roundtables. I need them going on without me overseeing them. It's the same thing with why we're not having office hours right now is because people expect me to be hosting and running them and I don't have time. I'm eight episodes behind from interviews that I've recorded. I haven't finished the production on those. So it's either one of two things. You don't actually want to speak to implementers and ask them direct questions or you do. And if you do, I will not set up any of these roundtables unless I have help. I need somebody to host them. You don't even have to ask the questions. I just need somebody who is going to say, yes, I will be on the call. I will be there to help make sure it all goes smoothly. So about the episodes this week. On Monday, it's episode 120, which is applying ML learnings, especially about Drift to Data Mesh, which is an interview with Yelena Samulova. Uh, I spoke with Yelena from Evidently AI. She's the CEO and co-founder there. Um, and they're uh, an ML model monitoring company, right? An open source uh, initiative as well. So we talked about the concept of drift in machine learning. And we talked about how we might apply drift and other machine learning concepts and approaches to data, especially you know relative to data mesh. It's a really interesting discussion if you want to expand your thinking on what might be possible. But I also understand if there's no additional room for more cognitive load. But I think we need to start looking at um, what have we learned from machine learning that we should be applying to data mesh as well. On Wednesday, there's no mesh musings on Tuesday. On Wednesday, there'll be episode 121, which is Jamak's Corner 2. Are you ready for data mesh? So Jamak gives us her thoughts on what are the signals that you are actually ready to take on implementing data mesh? It's not for the faint of heart. You know, you have to have the stick to of it. You have to be ready. You have to have a certain digital maturity or it's going to be very, very hard, especially right now. The tool sets just aren't there. 
And yes, in general, I'm going to re-record the openings on these episodes in the near future. I want to do a bit more of an intro to each and, and kind of that. But right now, again, I don't have time. On Friday, it's episode 122, Unlocking Your Data Value Through Good Product Practices, which is an interview with Ala Hale. This is a really fun and relaxed conversation about what Ala has learned in years of doing product management outside the data and software space. Many people are thinking we should only look to software product management when we think of treating data as a product. But I think that is very myopic, right? It's very narrow-minded. We want to look at practices from the physical goods spaces, especially, right? There's lots of good approaches and info in this one. And, you know, another kind of hack about, uh, you know, talking to people about how are you going to get them on your side and sharing what, what you know, her question of what would having this unlock for you, I think is really, really helpful and kind of the approach around it and, and how you can really implement that effectively. It's something where I think more people need to think about that data as a product just doesn't just mean creating data products. We need to think about how product management actually works. So with that, uh, we'll jump to the extended summaries. Extended summary for episode of 120, Applying ML Learnings, especially about Drift, to Data Mesh, an interview with Yelena Samulova. So I interviewed Yelena, who's the co-founder and CEO at the ML model monitoring company and open source project, Evidently AI. This summary is quite a bit different from other recent episode summaries. I'm going to add a lot of color on not just what was said, but how it could apply to data and analytics work especially for data mesh. It's a bit theoretical in nature, but I think it provides a lot of food for thought. So Yelena started by sharing a basic definition of the concept of drift in ML. Drift causes model degradation. So the model is not as effective as expected, right? Things start to degrade relatively quickly, and it can generally be split into data drift or concept drift. Data drift is typically something about the source of data that you're using for your model has changed. That doesn't mean using a new source, but more like you are in interacting with a different set of like prospects or customers than you were previously. So your predictions as to their behavior are going to be wrong. You built a model to react to a different set of people. Concept drift is more aligned at a very high level with semantic drift in data and analytics. It is that some aspect of the real world has changed. If you look at spending habits, especially in e-commerce between February of 2020 and April of 2020, <laughs> as the global pandemic started to take off, the real world changed a lot. That was an extreme example, but the real world is ever changing. How can we make sure we are still measuring and sharing the most meaningful information in our mesh data products? I think taking the concept drift and applying it to our, our data product could be interesting. A very important aspect of ML model drift per Yelena is that it is entirely expected. 
drift and its resultant model degradation is part of ML model reality. There is a cost of dealing with drift, but when an ML model is negatively impacted, it is no longer making optimal decisions. So when you detect said drift to a certain degree, you would retrain the model or shut it down or replace it with a new model. Uh, It's also hard to say how long a model will be in production before it seriously degrades. Or what is the degradation threshold when you should retrain or replace? Similarly, in data mesh, we need to think about how we evolve our data products to prevent degradation. ML models are purpose-built to do one thing, but start to degrade over time. Often in data and analytics, we've used data assets the same way. We kept using the same reports as they've degraded, and we didn't replace or evolve them. We need to do better in data mesh. So I think we really need to think about how we can continue to reflect reality as we evolve our data products. According to Yelena, good machine learning practice means each model is designed to do one thing very well, not to do many things instead. There's sometimes some misuse of ML models in organizations as people try to make use of the same model for multiple use cases. This is similar to the way a number of people use data assets, created to answer one question but leveraged to try to answer another. If there isn't a good understanding of exactly what the data asset addresses and how, it often leads to bad or incorrect conclusions on answering other questions. We need to do better when we're actually designing our mesh data products so that we can make it much easier for people to understand what they are and use them in the correct way to answer their questions. So how do we measure if an ML model has degraded and how do we fix it if it has? Per Yelena, you should measure your model against a certain set of expectations, typically via KPIs. If the model is no longer hitting expectations, it has likely degraded. Then you would look to retrain it. Use the same steps as before to train your model, but with the most recent data, or you might replace your model entirely. Yelena believes the most important aspect of building an ML model is communication first. Does that sound familiar to anybody out there? (laughs) What are you trying to actually do? What is the business reason for creating a model? When the model is created, what are reasonable and how can we stay away from unreasonable expectations? What are the business metrics to create the KPIs around? How will you track performance against expectations slash KPIs? These same types of questions can be applied to a mesh data product. Why are you creating the data product? What is the target use case and what is the expectation for the use case? Is the use case meeting expectations? If not, is that because of the data product or the use case itself or the expectations were wrong? You start to think about what is my return on investment? There's a continuing investment. It's not that you create a data product and there's no further cost to it. Is it worth the continuing investment. I asked Yelena about graceful evolution of machine learning models. How can we set ourselves up to deal with upstream changes more easily? And how can we manage to not break things for downstream consumers? Her answer was unsurprisingly familiar. Lots of good communication, using data contracts, using monitoring and observability tooling, setting guardrails, etc. Similar to the data mesh concept, Yelena believes you should really think of each model like a product. 
And again, I was looking for some machine learning magic fairy dust, some ML MFD, and she didn't have any here. So it's good to know that we don't have, uh, that we haven't actually missed out on some really easy way to do this, but uh, it would be nice if there were one. When asked about how the ML and analytics sides of the house can better collaborate, Yelena hopes that in many organizations, they aren't overly separate. Embedded ML engineers are similar to the embedded data and analytics capabilities and teams model many are using with data mesh. And she hopes once the kind of super fast paced evolution of data stacks starts to slow down, maybe both sides can start to consider using the same tooling, the same data stack between the two. But in general, as before, the biggest driver will be good communication when working between the ML and analytics sides. It pretty much always comes down to communication, doesn't it? (laughs) As mentioned earlier, Yelena strongly believes you should not try to use the same model for multiple purposes. But in ML, there is the concept of a feature. Essentially, it is a part of a model that might be used for multiple different models, producing a subset of the model's data input. So a feature could be reused across many ML models. This feature concept might be interesting to explore in a kind of proto-mesh data product kind of way. That way, we prevent multiple data products from doing the same work. An ideal way to prevent this reuse is communication, as Omar Kawaja discussed in his episode about having a really, really strong communication pipeline around what even data work people are initially starting to look at so there isn't multiple teams trying to create the same data or anything. A company-wide source data catalog or repository could be a way to ensure everyone knows what data is being transformed and who owns it, especially when new data products are in development. So there is a much smaller chance of teams doing the same work. This is something I think we should explore. I don't think it's going to be (laughs) a good answer in the end, but I think it's something we should ask ourselves about and think about. We can learn a lot from ML monitoring and observability per Yelena. In ML, you need to monitor the overall ongoing quality of data ingested into the model, the quality of the output of the model, and also quality at the point of ingestion, right? Are you, uh, can you block certain data from coming in or, or should we react to certain data as it comes in? Often that last part, you know, quality at the point of consumption is managed by guardrails. If data is not within a certain specification, it is not passed into the model, or the model doesn't react outside of certain bounds. Or if some metrics about the model relative to historical norms are very off, the model essentially gets paused and there is a failover to a less, you know, kind of rigorous solution or something that's kind of just automatic rules instead of ML-based rules. Sometimes passing bad data into the model is not the worst outcome. Your Amazon recommendation is for buying another toilet seat. How many of these do you you think I want, Amazon? But ML models can power very big dollar decisions. And these guardrails could be very useful in data mesh if you are driving decisions with a fast turnaround. Alert that something is unique or interesting or, or something has changed and see if there's a new normal or was there something funky upstream? Did something get malformed? I think putting in these guardrails and some alerting and, and making sure people don't create, you know, react automatically to certain things if it's way outside of spec is important and, and useful. 
Yelena mentioned ML uh, development sometimes has a perfectionist issue. People try to get to a perfect model before deploying something instead of getting to fast value, putting something into production that incrementally increases value quickly, right? And you can do that while you improve your model through quick iteration and tight feedback loops. This is becoming a very common theme in many of the interviews on this podcast. How do we get to incremental value very quickly while we improve the long-term mesh data product through fast iteration, right? Does this mesh data product have to be perfect when it comes out? Can we do some exploratory analysis and get to some insights now as we're building out the, the mesh data product to support the use case in the long run? Let's figure out how we kind of maximize both. Yelena wrapped up on two thoughts. One, maintenance of your ML models isn't quote unquote sexy, but it's probably the most important aspect. Maintenance is proactive maintenance, monitoring, setting up good feedback channels, communication in general, et cetera. It's not just the model in a vacuum. Is it having the impact you expect? And be prepared to pay for the maintenance, which plays into number two. If you build it, it will break. Set yourself up to detect the issues and make sure you budget people's time to keep things running and fix it when it breaks. And don't be surprised when it breaks. So I think there's some interesting things that you can learn from the ML space that we should consider applying at least to data mesh. Extended summary for episode 122, Unlocking Your Data Value Through Good Product Practices, interview with Ala Hale. So in this episode, I interviewed Ala, who's a data product manager at Ecolab. To be clear, she was only representing her own views rather than anything on behalf of the company. She's also looking to hire a data product manager in Barcelona. So you can see the show notes of the actual episode if you're interested in learning more. So Ala started off with what should data product management take from general product management based on our time managing products in a number of the tangible or physical goods spaces? Start from the basics. You have a user and they have needs that you want to try to meet and that you are responsible for discovering and summarizing those needs. Not that the user should understand all their own needs up front. That just leads to requirements that don't actually often meet their needs. It doesn't address the needs. Just be careful to extract needs and push back on requirements with patience and empathy. But it all starts again with needs, not the data. There is an understanding that prototypes have a real cost in the physical goods space. We need to make consumers, data consumers understand it's the same in the data and analytics space for all of And that different grades of prototypes mean different costs and time to develop. How high of quality do you really need this to be? How high quality do you need for the prototype, especially versus the end state? And exchange context around what requirements and needs drive what challenges. So they might deprioritize some of their needs for you and and make it so it's a little easier to develop. Always key phrase in general is, what would having this unlock for you? 
Instead of pushing back by asking, why do you need this? Her framing gets the other person on the front foot, leaning into the conversation to share what this could mean for them. This is kind of similar to what uh, Jean-Michel Coyer had talked about in his episode. It gets them to what, you know, that collaborative negotiation, a process where you can quickly iterate to what's really of value instead of a list of requirements that might not actually serve the needs of the use case. But always remember, they are coming to you, quote unquote, because they need your help, right? So something Allah said, so kind of react accordingly. A general rule Allah had uh, has is no prototype, no meeting. It's not a super, super hard and fast rule, but in general, you know, that prototype can just be a small drawing of a process map on a post-it note. The goal of this is, if we are going to have a meeting, we are meeting about something. A useful conversation will be about something, something people can actually react to. Concrete aspects of a prototype elicit a response, and that response means you can decide where to focus next, or if what's been developed thus far will meet needs and kind of where to go. Allah talked about sunsetting products and pruning aspects of the product. You should discuss sunsetting and pruning with data consumers at the start of development. You want data consumers to understand that things will change and some of that is removing features of the product, which might be certain parts of a data set or certain ways of accessing it. You're going to be removing those when the costs exceed the value to maintain, right? You want data consumers to be active in that conversation about what is still useful and what isn't, but sometimes you'll probably have to resort to turning something off and seeing if people scream. You know, it's kind of a a cliche way of of thinking about that, but I think it's really important to really (laughs) be realistic that you're not always going to have that that good bi-directional conversation going. In her previous roles, Ella had partners in R&D, sales, and marketing around the product. How much of those responsibilities should a data product manager actually own? Can we build tooling to help internal marketing of data products? Hopefully, we don't need to all become experts at sales and marketing to be able to kind of get our data product in front of a lot of people internally, but we do need to think about Those are aspects of data product management. We have to think about how do we create demand? How do we actually go out there and understand what the market, quote unquote, you know, internally of folks want? Allah shared her view that you should never develop a new mesh data product without a very specific use case. This is kind of a common question in data mesh that comes up in a lot of episodes. What should be your reason for creating a new data product? Is it a specific use case, or is it the domain sharing information they believe will be useful? I think it's probably 75-25 split that 75% of the people I'm talking to say you need a very specific use case. For Allah, and myself too, a truly underappreciated need in data is the data user experience, or the DUX. You should aim for consumers actually enjoying using your data product. Jamak has mentioned similar things, especially her love of the book, The Design of Everyday Things. Data can be intimidating to many. 
How can you make it so people don't feel stupid when first working with your data product? As Allah said, look to get pe people quickly past, quote unquote, what the product is so they can focus on what the product can do for them and start to leverage it and actually extract value from it. Allah wrapped up by sharing her view of kind of data driven. It's crucial to understand that data doesn't make the decision. We need to use data to inform our decisions, but at the end of the day, people still make the decisions and that that's communicated internally and that people don't just fully demure to the data and just say, okay, whatever it says, that's what we're going to do. You need to think about how you balance that and how you actually make it inform your decisions. Mm -hmm.